Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of notorious killers. I'm Denise, and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started. It's a beautiful day here in God's country. <laughs> it's a hot day here. My, yeah. kids are, my kids are hanging out inside and I'm like, I want to kick them out, but it's too hot for them to be out. July in the Midwest. Oh my gosh. Although, like, like I said earlier, the lake is gorgeous. So mm-hmm. I'm really, really lucky. Yeah. For those who are listeners, Zelda's in Chicago and she gets, has a beautiful view of the lake from her location. Mm-hmm. Our undisclosed location. Yes. <laughs> We're not going to say where our address is. No doxing. <laughs> and I'm sure that'll slip out another time. <laughs> yeah, so in some ways though, that, you know, the, um, uh, coronavirus worked out for us because we need to record everything via Zoom anyway. Because we don't live near each other. I mean, we, mm-hmm. we're in driving distance, but it's more involved than. Yeah. This is a lot. Corona has been such a blessing. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I just. Oh, don't did be sorry. Did sarcasm come across? Did the sarcasm come across? Well, well, you know, the one thing I am grateful for, and I'm sure we'll cut this in a moment, is um, that our governor. Our Illinois governor has taken it seriously, and as a result, our cases are dropping. Yeah. So I'm really proud of all of us that we pulled together and, you know, did our very best to try and stop this awfulness from stomping through our state. Right. And I'm sure it's going to go up because we're in phase four, which for Illinois means everything's opened up again. It's just <laughs> a smaller capacity. You can't have more than 50 people in a location and those types of things. So I know the numbers will go up because that's the nature of the virus, but we'll make do. Mm-hmm. Um, well, before we start, I want to explain to our listeners how this podcast works in case they're new. Um, okay. And this is only our third episode, so <laughs> I'm sure we have a lot of new listeners. Well, and not to mention, we're probably going to keep changing it as we go along. So <laughs> yes. I, I hope we got to make sure everyone's up to date. Mm-hmm. Yes. So basically, this is a true crime podcast. Um, we see this as a conversation between friends about a murderer. Because <laughs> who doesn't love to talk about true crime, right? Right. Am I right? Exactly. Yeah, I go to sleep with the, what my husband calls the murder channel on at night, um, <laughs> which is investigation <laughs> discovery. I always have a murder program on in the background and it helps me fall asleep. That's so funny. And for some reason, my husband's been nervous ever since he discovered I had this true crime obsession, <laughs> which he found out soon after the wedding night, and it was a shock to him. So that's so funny. Was he watching you boil flypaper for arsenic or something? Or no, he's just like, I'm not sure if I should be nervous going to bed. You know, too many ways to murder somebody. Seriously. So it's a chat between friends, and what we're going to do is we're going to discuss the crime and the person involved, and then we're going to talk about their family history. Sometimes it plays a role. I would think for everybody, it plays some sort of role. How that role is played, we might never know, but we find it interesting looking into their past and their family's past, and hope you do as well. Because we're nosy. Yes, we are. (laughs) That's our way. Okay, so I, I feel can, like what was it, Mrs. Cratchit looking through the window blinds? You know, I'm bewitched. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that would have been us. So, so who are we talking about today, Denise? Well, we're going to be talking about Michael Swingle. Are you ready to get started? I'm so ready. I've been like so looking forward to this discussion. Okay, I am too. And I, I want to before we start, I was going to tell you part of the reason I wanted to do this is because. He lived in Quincy, Illinois, and this case got a lot of attention at the time I was working in Quincy University, which is the same university he graduated from. Ooh, 
So it, it caught my attention right away and has been with me and I've followed up with it over the years to see what happened. So um, for Michael Swingo, it started with a fascination with death. As a teenager, he developed an interest in death, pictures of death, camps of the Holocaust, fatal car wrecks, and disturbing deaths filled his scrapbooks that he made. So he was goth before goth was cool. Very goth. Darker than probably a lot of gothic teens were. Wow. Um, in many ways, it wasn't a surprise, though, when Michael Swango decided to pursue a career in medicine because of this obsession with death. But in the end, the world would learn that his motivation in medicine had little to do with saving lives and more to do with seeing more death. Mm. Now, Michael was born in 1954 in Washington State. Okay, so let's clarify, he is a boomer. Yes, he is a boomer. <laughs> um, be before he considered medicine as a career, he decided to pursue music. See, when he grew up in Quincy, he played the clarinet in high school and earned a music scholarship to Millican University, which is here in Illinois. After he graduated for Christian Brothers Catholic High School in 1972, he headed to Millican, but he only stayed there for two years. Now, I want to go back to Christian Brothers. It's no longer known as Christian Brothers in Quincy. It's Quincy Notre Dame High School. It was an all-boys school when he went to school there. Okay. And then it merged with the girls' high school and became Notre Dame. My one little factoid there is that, did you know that the Christian Brothers were the ones who set up modern-style modern education in the United States with, I, like, classrooms and stuff like that? I did not know that, actually. I used to work for Christian Brothers College and you learn stuff like that. So that's my factoid for the day. Awesome. Then he quit college after being at Millican for two years and enlisted in the Marine Corps. Once his enlist enlistment ended in 1976, he headed back to school, this time to study medicine. He went to school at home. So in Quincy at Quincy University, which was known as Quincy College at the time. And he finished his bachelor's degree in 1979. Oh, did you know Quincy University has another famous alum? Is it you? No. <laughs> I didn't go there. I mean, I took a class or two, but no, John Mahoney from Frazier. No way. Yes. Oh, that's nice. I saw the yearbooks when I worked there. That's very cool. Well, after he finished his degree, he headed to SIU, that's Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. While a med student, Swango worked as an EMT, spending more time and energy on his job than schoolwork. Hmm. In fact, it was noted by many that he seemed most fascinated by dying patients. Oh. Yeah. Not long after, before graduation, it was discovered that Swango faked checkups on his OBGYN rotation and likely faked many before that time. Well, now, when they say faked, what do they mean faked? Like they said, like he said he did them, but he didn't really? Yes, exactly. Oh, huh, that's and curious. Get forged signatures and those types of things. Well, to be kicked out of the school required in a unanimous decision by a committee. Well, one faculty member voted for him to stay, so Michael stayed. Okay, so there was, there was, why were they going to throw him out? I think I missed that because he was faking checkups on his OBGYN rotation. Oh, okay. He was supposed to graduate. Yeah. yeah, he should definitely get tossed out for stuff like that. You would think, but one faculty member felt for him and wanted to give him a chance. So he they changed their rules after that. Yeah, he was permitted to remain, but he could not graduate that year. He had to repeat a year to complete his studies. Wow. And I can't, I imagine that they really were on top of making sure everything he did was authentic. Yeah. Could you imagine, though, being his classmate and, like, finding that out and they're going to let him stay in the school? Oh, I'd be I mean, so angry. Like, I would have been livid. livid. Like, I would be a member of the Nope Club after that. Not one penny ever to that <laughs> school. Yeah. So, okay, sorry. I interrupted. Continue. That's okay. Even with poor recommendations from his medical school, Michael Swangle was able to get a surgical internship at Ohio State University Medical Center in 1983 followed by a neurological residency. During his time as an intern and resident, nurses began to notice that Swango had an unusual number of deaths among relatively healthy patients. The nurses reported their concerns to the administration. The administration didn't believe the nurses. 
You always believe the nurses. And he was cleared in 1984. Yeah. Oh my God. Despite being cleared, OSU was not impressed with Swingo's work and pulled its residency offer after a year. Yeah, I, part of me can't help but think that part of the reason they didn't believe the nurses is they were women, not doctors. Of course, and especially in those times. I mean, we're talking the 80s at that point, right? I mean, at the 80s, I mean, the 80s weren't a whole lot better than the 70s. I mean, kids today don't know, but we know because we were there. (laughs) Yeah, I remember. I mean, women were not taken very seriously in a lot of ways. Nope. Well, after he was done at OSU, he returned to his home in Quincy. And in July 1984, he started working as an EMT with the Adams County Ambulance Service. But he might have had some problems while he's there. This is a headline from May 3rd, 1985 from the Southern Illinoisan, a newspaper out of Carbondale, Illinois. Doctor convicted of poisonings. A judge today found a 30-year-old doctor guilty of poisoning several of his co-workers' snacks with arsenic. <gasps> Circuit Judge Dennis Cashman handed down the ruling in the case of Dr. Michael Swango. Swango was convicted of six of seven counts of aggravated battery in the two-week bench trial. None of the six Adams County paramedics who ate the tainted food was injured seriously. He faces up to 10 years in prison on each of the six counts, which he was convicted. Oh, my God. Yeah. He denied that he did any poisoning. He said it was just chance. Um, But the state's key evidence was a sample of tainted tea from paramedic quarters at a Quincy hospital. And also positive identification of Swingo near the quarters that October. So this happened in October of 1984. So he was only on the job for three months when he... Wow. He was, he ended up being sentenced to five years in prison and that was it. Wait, five years for poisoning how many people? Six. Oh my. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, and honestly, I mean, okay, you lived in Quincy and I'm right. quite familiar with Southern Illinois, you know, being from right. Southern Indiana myself. Um, I'm surprised nobody just handled the problem, honestly. I mean, because back then he needed killing was something people would say and sometimes do. So why I, I'm shocked that he got off as easily as he did. Right. I mean, and there's it, what's interesting is on his sent and the paper on his sentencing, and I'll, I'll get to part of it, is I think part of, he's from Quincy. His family's from Quincy. Mm-hmm. Quincy isn't a large town. When I lived there, and I believe even to this day, it's a town of about 40,000 people. And it's funny because a lot of people come to town in Quincy mm-hmm. from the even smaller communities around it because the closest city to Quincy of any mm-hmm. substantial amount, and by substantial, I mean over 100,000, mm-hmm. is an hour and a half away in Springfield, Missouri, in Springfield, Illinois. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, Missouri, Illinois, they sound the same. Um, <laughs> He actually had a statement to the court, and it was 20 minutes. And in his statement, he said, in no way, shape, or form, under no conceivable circumstances, am I now or ever, could I ever be a danger to any human being on the face of the earth? Um, Some of the witnesses also testified, apparently, during this trial that when the lone gunman killed 21 people at that McDonald's. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, that was horrible. He actually cheered. It excited him. Oh, my God. Do, do, do you think his parents knew what he was? I mean, because, yeah. you know, we've all got a few oddballs in our family. And I'm sure right. everybody sat around going, if there were a serial killer in our family, who would it be? You know, I, and, and y'all know which one it would be. And we'll get into more of it later. I think his brothers might have known. Mm-hmm. But in terms of his parents, I don't think they did. I think they would have excused some of his obsession with death as normal. Mm-hmm. Or just something some people do, or boys will be boys type of attitude. That's just the way his mind works. Mm-hmm. Swango was released from prison after four years. At first, he got a job outside of the medical field, but he was fired because he kept working on his macabre scrapbook of death at work. <laughs> of course, he did. Of course, because that's so normal. Two oh years my later, gosh. I know. Two years later, he changed his name to Daniel J. Adams and tried to apply for a residency program as a doctor in West Virginia. By July 1992, he 
he was working as a doctor at Sanford USD Medical Center. That's in South Dakota. Hold the phone here. Mm -hmm. So he changed his name. Yes. Decided to go be a doctor under the changed name. Yes. And the, they, he found people to hire them? Hire right. them? And he legally changed his name. Okay. But still a background check should have revealed, well, you know. I'm about to get to that. Okay. Because to get to the, the job in San, at Sanford in South Dakota, he forged documents and falsified his prison record, saying he was in jail for six months after a fistfight with a coworker. He also forged a letter from then Virginia Governor Gerald Bay Bayless, I think how you say that, saying that Swango was a model citizen who had his rights to vote restored and had lived an exemplary life since his conviction. And think, this is the mid 80s. So you didn't have the computers that we do now to really do a good background check. You had to rely on phone calls and there's ways people were more able, I think, back at that time to forge a good background check than they can get away with now. Well, I do tend to agree with you that it was probably easier, mm -hmm. but I'm very disappointed in their human resources department because yes. honestly, two phone calls could have exposed his lies. Right. You know, but and so I, I think I they just like most HR people, not most HR people that's, you know, denigrating HR and I do love all the HR people I've ever known, but I think even these people, all other HR people should be judging that HR person. Right. I think back at that time, people were more trusting too. They see this letter. It looks real. They're like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. I, all I can no, say is that I, I think you're right. really I think, good. Yeah, because it takes a certain amount of chutzpah to say, right. here's, here's my lying life. <laughs> yes, of course, I did all these incredible things. And if you make it sound reasonably realistic, you know, people are likely to believe you, you know, people for the most part are inclined to trust. Yes. Now, of course, you and I have both had that kind of beaten out of us, you know, <laughs> life is beaten out. There is no trust. <laughs> no, I, I'm very, it's so funny because I consider myself an optimist, but I'm very cynical too. So it's, yeah. if it sounds too good to be true, I, I look at you kind of cross-eyed going, okay, what's the scam? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Well, while at Sanford, Swango had a good reputation. But two things happened to change this. First, using that chutzpah we talked about, he decided to join the AMA, the American Medical Association. <laughs> the AMA did a more thorough background check. And through that, they found his conviction for the poisonings at Quincy. Okay, and the second thing is the Discovery Channel aired an episode of The Justice Files that included a segment on Swango and the death that he kept leaving in his wake. I believe it mainly focused on the EMTs. Yet still, all it took was one person to watch that program and go. And one person did. As wow. soon as Sanford was informed by the AMA of their results and the episode aired, this is in November of 1992, Swango was fired. Oh my gosh. You know, people say TV is garbage and here we proved it saved lives. Yes, and I, I will get to, because you said that one person can make the difference, and we'll get to that one person here in a second. But from Sanford, Swango found himself, again, lying about his background at Stony Brook University Medical School in New York as a psychiatric resident. And you guessed it, patients started dying inexplicably. At a psychiatric hospital? They were dying a psychiatric, psychiatric resident at a medical uh, medical center. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. The hospital wasn't a psychiatric hospital. He right. was a psychiatric intern. Okay. Right. Now let's go back for a little bit. We're going to go to 1991 because I did skip over a couple places he was because he was at a few places because for a time he was working in Virginia. This is how he got the idea to use a forged letter from the governor of Virginia. And in 1991, while there, he was working at a VA hospital. He met a nurse by the name of Kristen Lynn Kinney. They developed a romantic relationship with plans to marry someday. After he was fired from Sanford, so he left Virginia to, for the job in South Dakota, Kristen suffered from migraines, then returned to Virginia after the program on the Discovery Channel aired. Her migraines stopped. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So, so basically, 1991, Swain goes in Virginia, goes to South Dakota, has his job at Sanford. Everything airs. Everything comes out. 
Kristen goes back to Virginia, she's no longer having migraines. I just have to take a moment here and think, how on earth did he woo her? Was it, look at my macabre sca- scrapbook, aren't I a catch? <laughs> I wonder, I mean, he kept the scrapbook forever. Did she ever see it or did he learn at that point to have it hidden? Dated a guy once, who the first time I went to his apartment, he was like, I want to show you my paintings. All of his paintings were like creepy clown paintings. So Ooh. that was actually our last date. <laughs> so like, I like when guys out themselves like that. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know what's in your head and I can see I don't want to. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so she's safely in Virginia away from the killer. And he's now at Stony Brook. Well, a few months after she went back to Virginia, she committed suicide. Oh, God. Arsenic was found in her body, actually, at the time. Are we sure it was suicide? I believe so. I mean, her mom seems confident it was suicide. And I think that's important because her mother was horrified to learn of all Swango had done. So everything like happens very short time period here. So she saw the Discovery Channel thing as well. She's horrified. So Kay's mom knows all that he's done. Her daughter is now dead. She blames Swango. As well as she should. Right. And then she contacted a nurse she knew of at Sanford because that's Kristen. When they went to Sanford, she went with him and she was working at that hospital as well. Okay. So the mother contacts the nurse at Sanford saying, hey, this is what's happened. And I know that Swango's at Stony Brook now. The nurse told the dean at the medical school there in South Dakota about where Swango was. From there, the dean called Stony Brook Medical and let them know who Michael Swango was. Wow. But Michael Swango then lost his job. It only takes that one person. But like literally all that happened was he lost his job. They didn't like toss him in jail for fraud. They didn't, you know. Well, it gets better. Uh, uh, unlicensed practice, practice of medicine. I mean. Yeah. So this is probably 93, 94. So his world's falling down around him now because people are catching on to who he is. He wasn't only just fired from Stony Brook, though. He was blacklisted in the whole medical community nationwide. Feds became involved because deaths happened at the VA hospitals as well. Oh, wow. He was killing veterans. Yes. Oh, my God. But he didn't let all this attention on him didn't stop him. In November 1994, Swango fled the country, relocating to Zimbabwe. (gasps) Didn't Zimbabwe have enough problems at that point? Wow. They've struggled a lot. He used forged documents again, and he got a job as a doctor. That's horrifying. Yeah, and again, patients started dying. But the Zimbabwe officials were a little bit more on top of it and noticed that patients were dying when they shouldn't be, and he was suspended. Swango, arrogant as ever, hired an attorney to help him return to clinical practice in Zimbabwe. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's some, wow. Yeah. That's what's tough. Yeah. While this was going on, his landlady died. The autopsy revealed she had toxic levels of? Not arsenic. Oh, yes, arsenic. And her oh, hair. my God. So what is the body count at this point? It's, I'm like. It's very high. The police oh. in Zimbabwe were consulted, and the case passed on to Interpol, and the FBI were notified. In a rush, Swango left, and he got another job at a hospital in Saudi Arabia. But this is where he makes what? a mistake. Yes, he makes a mistake. Because he, he decided to come back home briefly, probably to visit his family, his mother. And on his way to his new job, he had a layover in Chicago. And he was arrested. Go Chicago! <laughs> At first, Swango was only charged with fraud for all those forged documents. He was sentenced to three and a half years in prison in July 1998. Before he was released, a case was made for murder. Michael Swango pled guilty to three counts of murder, to wire fraud and mail fraud in September 2000. Swango was sentenced for three consecutive life sentences and is currently incarcerated at the ADX Supermax Prison in Florence, Colorado. Wait, he's still alive? Yes. I find that both fascinating and improbable, but I, wow. Supermax. So if After all of that death. 
After and I all of that. Yeah, I believe most supermaxes, they have their own individual rooms. It's like 23 hours. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's the a F serious prison. I'm, I imagine he's fairly protected there, but still. Right. The FBI believes that Swango was responsible for at least 60 murders, making him one of the most prolific serial killers in the United States. So 60 as in six zero. Yes. Wow. In fact, I don't think we'll ever know how many people he murdered. Wow. They were only able, they only went to court with three, probably because those were the easiest case they could prove. Right, right. Oh my gosh. Wow. Mm -hmm. Please tell me this man never had children. He did not. Oh, thank God. Could you imagine how messed up you would be if you were the child of a serial killer like that? Well, yeah, because I've actually seen some in different programs and they've talked and it really does play with their heads and it, it's got to be traumatic. I mean, it's traumatic I mean I'm a mess and my parents weren't even serial killers. Yeah, it's traumatic enough for the victims and their families, mm -hmm. but I always kind of feel bad for the family members who didn't know that that was their spouse or their father who's right. doing all this. We're going to have a little fun. We're going to get into his family history. I cannot wait. This is going to be fascinating. And some of it's, I find, well, because I love genealogy so much, <laughs> I find a lot of it interesting. Most of my sources to track the family came from the U.S. Census records, marriage records, wherever I could find them, death records, some birth, and we'll go on from there. If I have another one that's interesting, and a lot of old newspapers where I can find them as well. Wow. Um, one of my challenges is Quincy does not have any newspapers online past 1926. Okay. So I'm limited there where I think I could get a lot more information. But Michael Swango was the son of John Virgil Swango and Muriel Dorothy Strubhart. And he was one of four boys by his mother, her third child. He had family. Yes. Yeah. Do you think his brother sat around going, yep, that's the serial killer in our family? That's the one where if anything would happen, I would think they would be the ones going, we had an idea. Yeah. Wow. Because for different reasons, I think their parents were blind to a lot of this. Mm -hmm. And we'll, we'll kind of cover that a little bit here. We're going to talk about his mom first. His mom was born in 1920, and she was raised in a very Catholic family. And so Catholic. I mean, and we know all about the Catholics. There was a, she grew up in Clinton County in a town of Abiston and in Breeze, Illinois. This is a very small community. And I found a newspaper article from June 4th, 1934, when she was 13 years old. Muriel is honored by receiving Bishop Althoff's scholarship, entitling her to a year's board and tuition at Notre Dame in Belleville. Muriel oh, made nice. Yeah, Muriel made the highest grade of all participants in the Belleville Diocese in the examinations held at Notre Dame Academy, May 26. And it was a boarding school at the so time. So she was a smarty pants. Yes, very smart. And you would imagine, I, I would think with a test and any sort of essay you would have to send, you're going to have to emphasize your faith to go to a school like this. And just as another side note, the academy is no longer a boarding school or of any sort it's it closed in 1972 and yeah a lot of those catholic high schools especially the ones that were single sex mm -hmm. started closing in the 70s because people were more interested in co-educational opportunities right. and a lot fewer people were sending their kids to boarding schools yeah and at the location now is altoff high school it's a catholic high school named after the bishop that gave her the scholarship oh nice um, she did not stay at Notre Dame Academy for too long, from what I could gather. From there, she went to St. Mary's Catholic School for Girls in Carlisle, Illinois. I believe part of it was location. Belleville would have been about 30 miles from her home, and she could only come home on occasion whenever she could get a ride or they could come and get her. St. Mary's, on the other hand, was less than 10 miles away. So she went to school, she graduated, and then in 1939, when she would have been 18, she got a job. And it, of course it was noted in the small town paper because you gotta love the small town papers, saying that she went oh, to, yeah. Muriel Strubhart went to Quincy, Illinois last Friday where she will serve an internship as a laboratory technician in St. Mary's Hospital in that city. That's actually a very forward sort of job at the time. Yes. That's very cool. 
she had a, a job, she's ready to go. And while she's there, she meets a man by the name of Richard Kirkering, and they marry. Oh, that's nice. But the marriage is short-lived. Um, they divorced probably before 1950. Oh, that's disappointing. And they had a big, grand Catholic wedding, too. It was noted in the local paper going over what they wore, and they had the nuptial mass and all the details. Those are my favorite wedding announcements, are the old ones where they're like, and the bride's dress was closely pearled with the sweetheart neckline, and they just like go get into it, you know? I love right. those. Well, while they were married, they did have one son, and I'm, I'm not going to name her other kids' names. I figured these are people who would like to keep their privacy, but they did. she did have one son with him. Okay. A few years later, I am guessing, now I'm, here's the thing, I could not find some information here, and I dug. And I dug and I, I, I hit walls that I normally shouldn't hit on this. I don't have access to most divorce records. I guess I could request them, but I'm not going to go through that effort for this show. But it's likely they divorced before 1950. Based on their children, I'm guessing they, she remarried in 1950. And I can't find that wedding record either. Huh. And what I find interesting is that she marries John Virgil Swango. And he's a military man. And there was nothing said about it in any paper, in the local paper from the town she's in. And it turns huh. out the man she married was not Catholic. Oh, well, then she, she couldn't have had a church wedding then anyway. She could have had a church wedding. And my guess is she might not have even had the marriage annulled. Oh, wasn't wow. wasn't enough time for an annulment, you wouldn't think. Wow. Well, and honestly, at that time, if they had a child, it would have been really hard to get an annulment. Right. So it's almost as though it was kept hush-hush, this new marriage, mm -hmm. because nothing was really mentioned except if she visited home and say, Mrs. Muriel Swango, who used to be of this community, is here for a visit with her parents. And that would be the most that was ever said about the marriage. Muriel's parents were John Andrew Strubhart and Margaret Lager. Both were born and died in Clinton County, Illinois. And she... Muriel had one sister named Vereen. Her father was a barber, and he was the oldest of three siblings, and he was also the first child of an immigrant parent, Alois Strubhart, and his mother was Elizabeth Haster, whereas Margaret was the fourth of nine children, and she was also the first child of immigrant parents. Now, Alois was born in 1849 in Alsace, France. And he arrived in the United States in New Orleans on the 27th of November, 1857 from Le Havre, France on the ship Zenobia with his family. He would have been eight years old when he came to the United States. Now, what's interesting is they came from Alsace, Alsace France, um, which it's kind of interesting when you look into it. It changed hands between France and Germany several times. Even the name of the main city there, Strasbourg, sounds more Germanic than French. Yeah. My mom's family, like our heritage is from that whole Alsace-Lorraine area. Okay. So that's, cool. that's why I'm like, oh, wait, I know about that. Sometimes it's Prussia. Sometimes it's France. Sometimes it's Germany. Well, <laughs> in fact, the last, it, it was under French control at the time they came over. But in, a few years later, starting around 1870, 1871, it went back under German control until the end of World War One. Very interesting. I had to look that up so I could understand because I knew that area was battled over a lot. Well, and I think it's very interesting that he came in through New Orleans. Yes. You know, also very French um, at that time rather than through New York, which is where, you know, you kind of expect the immigrants to come at that time to come in through Ellis Island. You know, I, I know that personally, I hadn't really thought about, wow, people were immigrating at all different kinds of port cities. Well, and Honestly, and I have to look up the date again, Ellis Island was not open for that long. I don't believe it opened until the 1880s. Oh, really? And then it closed, what was it, 1930 or sometime before that? So it wasn't open for a very long time. In fact, my German immigrant ancestors came over in 1850 and they came leaving La Havre, France and, and ending up in New Orleans as well. So I just Googled. And you are correct, Miss. Um, it operated from 1892 to 1954. Approximately 12 million immigrants 
Now, 1892, why do we care about 1892? Because in 1893 was the Chicago Columbian Exposition World's Fair, yes. where we had another serial killer. H.H. Holmes. Exactly. And of course, the city of Chicago, quite a few of the grand institutions of the city of Chicago sprung forth from the loins of the Columbian Exposition. <laughs> so, as you were, Let's hear more about his family. Well, he came over with his family, including his parents, Sebastian, who was born in 1808, and his mother, Elizabeth Hoffman, who was born in 1813. He was one of seven children, and this was confirmed. I saw Sebastian's will and read through it, and they did pretty well for themselves coming as immigrants, but his siblings were... Now, I, I want to say this really quick. A lot of Germans would as a other nationalities would Americanize their name. Mm -hmm. And it was no different for Alois and his siblings, although he kept by going Alo by Alois. But like. in Sebastian's will, he didn't go with the Americanized versions of his children's names. He went with their birth names. Mm -hmm. So his siblings were Franz or Frank, Matthias, Matthew, Elizabeth, Nicholas, Victoria, and Andreas or Andrew. And I have Alloy's obituary. Oh. Now, his father died in 1896, so, but there was no, I couldn't find anything on him. But Alloy's died in 1928. And it says, Alloy Strubhart, father of city clerk John Strubhart, and John would have been Michael Swango's grandfather, passed away at his home in Trenton, Clinton County. Thursday, February 9th at 10.40 a.m. About a year ago, he suffered a slight paralytic stroke and for the past month was seriously ill following a second stroke. Deceased was born in Alsace, France, and came to this country with his parents when eight years of age. They settled in, I don't know how to pronounce this, so I'm going to do my best here, Shakerag. Shakerag? So if any of our listeners know how to pronounce that, you can let us know, please. A small settlement about, like shake rag, but it's all one word. <laughs> a settlement about one mile north of Aviston, which contained about 15 residences and few business places. After the building of the railroad, people moved to Aviston. The Strubhart family, however, living on a farm near Aviston. For the past four years, the aged couple had been living in Trenton. And it goes on to say a little bit later that he was a pioneer and well-liked resident of Clinton County and a man of great devotion and love for all, belonged to the St. Mary's Church at Trenton. Oh. So, his wife was Elizabeth Haster, and she was the third child of immigrant parents from Germany, William Haster and Elizabeth Winter. And I tried to find them in Germany with no success. I tried to find them coming over from Germany with no success. Part of the problem is Elizabeth, there were several Elizabeth Winters about her age that came over from Germany all about the same time. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult to narrow down which one was her. Elizabeth's father, William, came by himself first on the, sh on the ship. So I did find him, but I could not find anybody else at, at, from his family, even though a lot of them settled in the area. On the ship, Mary Clark from Hessen, Darmstadt, Germany, arriving in New Orleans in November, 1850. Interesting. So I looked up the Zenobia, the mm -hmm. ship that, um, the, and you said that was like in the 1870s, wasn't it? No, 1857. 1857 that the Zenobia was there? Yes. Okay then that is not the same ship because I was like, Hey, I found a ship called the Zenobia, <laughs> but 1868 was the launch time. So, okay. So it's a different one. The different Zenobia. Apparently though, I found out uh, just now that Zenobia was actually a very popular name for ships. Oh. So there've been quite a few ships named Zenobia over time. So I had no idea. Neither did I, but I was entranced by that name because I mean, how many ships, I mean, I mean, how many times do you hear people or anything named after conquering queens of Egypt? Right. And you got to do a shout out for the ladies. So go Zenobia. Well, Michael's grandmother, Margaret Lager, and so Muriel's mother, was the daughter of Bernhard Heinrich Lager, good solid German name. Mm -hmm. And according to the 1900 census, he arrived in the United States in 1867 from Germany. He would have been 18 years old when he came, and he did very well for himself. Um, in the 1880 census, though a farmer, he even had a servant living in the home, which is not something you would commonly see. 
Um, he married his wife sometime around 1875, Euphemia Marie Welling. I love the name Euphemia. Yes, and she so went now, by Mary. Were they, were they settled then in New Orleans area, Louisiana, or did they come up river and settle in they Illinois? They came up river and settled up in Illinois. And okay. I found this with even my German ancestors. They came up river and they settled at first in Iowa and then went to St. Louis. In fact, there's a story in my family, I don't want to get too much into it, that my German ancestors met each other on the ship. So my Haberstrom oh. met the Dauernheim on the ship coming from Germany. Well, I saw the ship manifest and the Dauernheims weren't on that. And I can't Ooh. find them on anything. So now we're wondering if maybe they met on a, oh, what are those called? On the river? A the river, river boat. Boats? Yeah. We're mm -hmm. wondering if they might have met on the river boat and not on the ship. Oh, that would be interesting. So, um, but he did well. And his wife, though, died in 1916 in April. She would have been 66 when she passed away. So it's not like she lived a short life. They had a long life together. But he married this time to Agnes Overhoff six months after she passed away. Not an unusual scenario. No, especially back then. He didn't mm -hmm. have children, but he probably just didn't want to be alone either. Well, it, somebody's got to do the cooking. And it could have been of a benefit to Agnes as well. We don't, she had been married before too, and her husband had passed away. So mm -hmm. these are two widows marrying each other yeah um, everybody he, needs a companion yeah he died less than six years later and she lived another 10 beyond that bernhardt's parents were john benedict lager and margaret elizabeth way they also came to the u.s and died in clinton county and he had at least five siblings that also all immigrated to the united states but i can't find much on them beyond that i just to clarify so it seems like all of his great-grandparents mm -hmm. immigrated in the late 1800s in the middle 1800s yes okay like mid the to late, mid to 1850s late. to the 1870s right okay at least his maternal side that okay. that's true now his great-grandmother euphemia marie or mary as she was called <laughs> um, her marriage to bernhard was actually her second she was originally married to a man by the name of John Gears, not long after she arrived. So she arrived in the United States in 1871, according to the census, and likely married him in 1872 because they had one child together in 1873 by the name of Gerhard John Gears. I and love it, that name. Yeah. It appears that John died. I can't find him anywhere, so I'm going to make that leap. And then she married Bernhard. And they, their nine children were William, Wilhelmina, Anton, Frederick, Caroline, August, Emma, Anne, and of course, Margaret, Michael Swango's grandmother. What a phenomenal Catholic family. Yes. You know, nine kids. Yes, very Catholic. Well, now we're going to get to some of the more fun stuff on the Swango side. Ooh. So we're going to start with Colonel John Virgil Swango, Michael's father. And yes, I said Colonel because he was a military man and a military officer. He was born in 1914, not Catholic. And then none of the kids that they raised with Muriel ever were Catholic. Mm -hmm. So she, oh, was raised, Muriel. Yeah, she was raised very Catholic, very Catholic background. All her grandparents were Catholic. And she, and she seems like she's been a good Catholic girl right? up to the point of her first marriage. Exactly. And after that divorce, she's no longer Catholic. She's with John Virgil and has given up her faith completely. And in oh. fact, the only reason that Michael Swango went to Christian Brothers High School, which was a Catholic school, was because he was seen as brilliant and they wanted to give him an extra opportunity. Okay. See, she, he was the favored son in so many ways. And that's why I don't think the parents saw it because he mm -hmm. was smart and they I thought agree. he could do no wrong. Mm -hmm. Like I said before, I don't know when John and Muriel got married, but I would estimate sometime between 1950 and 1952. And they had three children. Michael was the second of the three children they had together or the third of all of Muriel's children. John was active duty army and he first enlisted during World War II in June 1941. It would not be the only war he served in, but he did fill out a draft card before he enlisted. And in the draft card, he was described at the time as being 5'11", 200 pounds with a ruddy complexion, brown hair, and blue eyes. And he would have been, those 
cards came out around 1940, so he would have been 26 years old. They moved several times because of the military life. Michael was born in Washington State. They even spent time in Fort Worth, Texas, because Virgil taught at Texas Christian University. And I found a little snippet on the TCU website about him. Really? Yes, they have a page honoring Vietnam veterans and said the following, U.S. participation in the Vietnam War and the drafting of over 600,000 Americans divided the country and led to a tumultuous 1960s, which resonated on TCU's campus. TCU students, alumni, and faculty served in Vietnam. Some earned prestigious honors, like Colonel John V. Swango, Professor of Military Science, who was awarded the Bronze Star. Wow. Mm-hmm. So during the, during the Vietnam War, from the period of 1968 to 1975, John was not home a lot. In fact, he was only home once every six months to visit the family. Apparently, when he was home, he ran the house like the military. Oh, my. <laughs> Well, and, you know, he had been in the military since 41, and he actually believed, you know, that the oldest child should be in charge of the younger ones. And so the oldest son would be punished if his brothers misbehaved. Mm. And what didn't go well, there's a book um, about the murder by, written by James Stewart, and he des- describes the family and some of the stuff. Is his oldest was more of a hippie, very anti-war. So I'm sure that really didn't go well. Whereas Michael tended to avoid the drama and he would do what was told and obeyed a lot more. When John was gone, though, Muriel didn't really discipline the kids and even Mm. got called out once on a military base because one of the other officers thought the kids were running wild. Wow. And one thing you learn if you're on a military base, your family is just as much military in some ways as the parent who's serving. I always knew as a child that if I got in trouble at school, my dad would probably get trouble at work. Mm -hmm. I was a reflection of him. Wow. And that's part of military life. Now, Muriel's son with her first husband lived with his father, did not live with the Swango's family. One of the reasons given in the book by Stewart was that the, the problem was John Virgil Swango was too disciplinary for him, too, too rough. I'm supposing there might have been abuse, but I didn't see any evidence of it anywhere. But I think the other part had to do with the fact that there were military life moving a lot. So his father wouldn't get to see him as often. And they were Catholic Mm -hmm. and wouldn't want to have a Catholic child not going to church. Right. So in 1976, the couple separated after Virgil hit Muriel. Oh, wow. She kicked him out of the house. So there must have been some kind of violence happening anyway. Right. And they, the book makes it seem as though it was one incident of violence and she said, I'm not going to have you hit me, mm-hmm. but it could have been, there was more and that was just the last straw. We won't know. Right. We don't know, but they never officially had divorced. Oh. Hmm. And Virgil went and lived in a trailer and he died of cirrhosis of the liver in 1982. Oh, wow. So he was probably an alcoholic for yeah. quite a bit. Wow. Yeah. I can't imagine the, the pressure with Vietnam he was one who was helping move things with bases as the war ended. He was involved with a lot of that. But he was buried with full military honors and a 21-gun salute. John's, John Virgil, I'll call him Virgil because it's easier because there's more Johns. His parents were John Harvey Swango and Ada Hamilton. Both were born in Missouri, and they moved with their family to Adams County, Illinois, the Quincy area, around 1911. They had three sons, Charles, Harvey, John Virgil, and Robert Leroy and four daughters, Mabel Ruth, Mary Grace, Louise Barbara, and Betty Jean. Now, Harvey, as he was called, um, was a shoe repairer and later a county recorder for Adams County, Illinois. And he was number six out of eight. And they married, he and Ada married in 1907. Now, I found interesting is I went, I saw the draft registration for Harvey for World War I, and it listed that he had an incident with infantile paralysis around the age of one. Hmm. So now things get a little interesting because I did discover in the Quincy paper from back then some incidents with one of their kids, Charlie. There was a case, and this is the heading of the um, newspaper article in the Quincy Daily Herald in 1917, case in court over grocery bill. Mrs. Swango has Mrs. Wrigler arrested. Um, In police court, Tuesday forenoon, Mrs. Ada Swango charged Mrs. Lewis Wrigler with assaulting Charlie Swango, aged nine, and slapping him. 
The charge was denied by Mrs. Riggler and her denial was substantiated by several witnesses who testified that all Mrs. Riggler did was to force back into the boy's pocket some change his mother had sent with him to settle a bill at the store. Wow. Yes. And there was a couple of posts on this and I don't think it was, I ever saw the resolution on this, but she wanted her charge. She wasn't going to have her son hit. Interesting. Then the next year in 1918, Charlie Swango is convalescent. Charlie, the 10 year old son of Mr. and Mrs. Harvey Swango is recovering from an illness that for a time threatened serious results. A carbuncle on the neck affected the spinal column and for some time the lad lost the use of his legs. Oh my God. Surgery was resorted to in the removal of the pernicious growth and now Charlie will soon be able to return to his studies at Jefferson School. Wow. Okay, so how is Charlie related to Michael Swango? That's his uncle, his great uncle. Okay, okay. So I just, I had fun finding that one. Ada's parents were Charles Hamilton or father was Charles Hamilton, and her mother was Julia May Chadwick. And they lived in Knox County, Missouri. And let me explain where Knox County is. It's north of St. Louis. It's to the west of Quincy. It's about 40 miles west of Quincy, with one county in between the two. And it's east of Kirksville, Missouri. This line I found going all the way back to Robert Hamilton, who was born in 1810 in Ohio, and his wife, Lavina Rachel Sally, was born in Kentucky, and she was the daughter of Benjamin Sally and Catherine Rimley. The Rimleys were from Germany, and they immigrated at the end of the 18th century. Charles lived and worked in Adair County, Missouri, and he married Julia May Chadwick in April 1888, but she passed away before 1909. She wasn't very old at the time. She would have been 41. He married again, Margaret Houghton, and soon after they married, they left the county and moved to Joplin, Missouri. Why, I have no idea, but his, his children all stayed in Knox County or in the general area. Interesting. I mean, Joplin was a fairly prosperous area, so maybe they just needed a new start somewhere? Had a job, had a That's business right. They wanted to retire. I mean, who knows? Yeah. Or he had a business opportunity. But there is um, a book, The History of Adair County, which is where Kirksville, Missouri is, published in 1911, and there's a little snippet on Charles, saying Mr. Hamilton was reared on a farm in Knox County, Missouri, attended the public school and Oaklawn College at Novelty, taught school, and farmed in that county till 1893, then came to Kirksville. He engaged in the Building and Loan Association and insurance business. He served as postmaster of Kirksville from 1897 to 1901. Since then, he has been in real estate, loan, and insurance. A good upright person. Right. Now, Charles's wife, first wife, Julia May Hadwick, was the first child of John Milton Chadwick and Helen L. Canterbury. Now, her father, John Milton, was married to a woman by the name of Eliza Jane Coppers before he married Helen. But Eliza died in May 1865. She would have been in her early 30s, late 20s. And those two had two children. Then John married Helen soon after, probably to help raise the children and all of that good stuff. John died, though, in 1899. He would have been 60, 67, 66. He was 20 years Helen's senior. Oh, wow. So she would have been in her 40s when he died. Basically, John dies in 1899. Her daughter, Julia, died in 1908. And soon after, Helen decided to leave Missouri. She went by herself not with any family members, not with any of her children. She headed out on her own, and she first moved to Billings, Montana. Oh, my God. In 1912, and then she settled from there in Spokane, Washington by 1920, where she worked as a bookkeeper, and she died in She wanted the heck out of Dodge, huh? Wow. Yes. And it seems so adventurous, going off on her yeah. own, single woman. She never remarried. Yeah. The Chadwicks go back to Elijah and his wife, Susan Smoot. I love that name. And she died before 1845 in Kentucky. And they lived in Virginia. Then they moved to Knox County, Missouri, probably after Susan died. And he had 10 children, eight with Susan, then one with a second wife, Jane Lane. And then she didn't live too long. And about 10 years later, he had another child with his third wife, Catherine Waugh. Now, this is where it gets kind of fun. His third wife, Catherine Waugh, her first husband was the name, had the name Jeremiah Lycan Canterbury. 
Canterbury is the same last name as Julia's mother, Helen Canterbury. So I looked at it closely. Jeremiah and Catherine were the parents of Helen. Okay. So basically, John and Helen were step-siblings. Oh. But in this case, unlike the other one where we had this happen before, they were 20 years apart. So they probably never lived together. Wow. Mm -hmm. Huh. That is interesting. Now, we're going to go a little further back with the Swangos. Not too much further back because it gets very complicated the further back you go to discuss. But So let's go back. John Michael Swango, his father's John Virgil. His grandfather is John Harvey Swango. His great-grandfather is Elijah Swango, who was born in 1836. He was born in Gallatin County, Kentucky, and his family had lived there for a long time. It was first settled in the area with a man by the name of Abraham Swango, who was born in 1727 in Germany. Hmm. So it seems Michael's family, except for maybe the Hamiltons and Chadwicks, was a very German family. And Abraham was there with his wife, Elsie Piles, and the family lived there for multiple generations and continued to do so. Elijah left around 1872 and settled in Missouri, first in Lewis County, which is to the east of Knox County. So it's right between Knox and Quincy. Then he moved to Knox. Now, Elijah fought in the Civil War. He enlisted while he was in Kentucky in October 1861 and signed up for a term of three years as a private in Captain Pugsley's company, 18th Regiment, Kentucky Infantry for the Union. Nearly two years later, after he enlisted in the Union, he was reported missing at the end of the Battle of Chickamauga. Now, I had to look up this battle, and it happened, I believe, around Atlanta, not Atlanta, but in Georgia. He was missing. They couldn't find him, and then they later discovered that he was a prisoner of war. Mm. He was held in Charleston, South Carolina by the Confederacy until they paroled him on the 10th of December, 1864. So he was basically in prison for about a year. Oh my God, that poor man. Because Confederate prisons were just awful. The worst. They were pretty bad. Um, he returned to Kentucky and he was mustered out in March, 1865. And he was the fifth of 11 children, five girls, six boys. Wow. Three years after the war ended, he married Mary Ellen Walters, and there you go. When I looked up, though, beyond that, I found something interesting about Elijah's grandfather. So Elijah is Michael Swango's great-grandfather. So his third great-grandfather was James Swango. James Swango was born in 1762 in Delaware, and I found this little thing in a paper just by chance. And here's what the headline reads. It's from the Kentucky Gazette, dated November 25th, 1797. Lexington, Lexington District Court. The grand jury presented an indictment against and has a list of people. And in that list is against James Swango for murder. <gasps> Whoa. And what then happened? It says, on the second day of the term, James Swango was arraigned and tried and found guilty of murder. But it doesn't say any more than that. And I dug. I went back to mm -hmm. earlier papers to see if anything was mentioned. Have not figured out who he murdered. Okay, noble listeners, if you live in the area of Lexington, Kentucky, and can find out what on earth this man did to be convicted of murder, please let us know. Look now, on I, our website for our contact information. Yes. Now, you helped me research a little bit so I could try to figure out what it was. And I think there might be a time if I could ever get to the state archives in Kentucky and I had the thought about it at the time, I might be able to find the court case on it. I, I did notice on a website that has done a lot of genealogy on the Swango family mm -hmm. that they said that he was considered to be kind of wild and crazy. So who knows what he did. But then a month later... Wednesday, December 27, 1797, there's a little notice in there. And I'm, I'm, by little, I mean, it is tiny. This is blown up. Wow. And it says, tomorrow, we understand, is the day appointed for the execution of James Swango. Oh, wow. Well, then on December 30th, 1797, there's another article about James. And it says, Thursday last, being the day appointed for the execution of James Swango for murder, Agreeable to the decree of the last district court, a number of people assembled to, the, to be spectators. He was taken from the prison, carried to the gallows, and received the governor's pardon. 
right at the last minute. Yep, he was not hung. Wow. So what happened that he received the pardon? Do we Again, know? I have no idea. He was pardoned by the governor at the end of that time, and I couldn't find any notice on that either. I even looked up information under the governor at the time to see if there was a list of pardons and was unable to find information. But he lived, which is probably part of the reason why Michael Swango's here to this day, because had he not lived, Levi Swango would not have been born because he was born in 1804. And if Levi Swango wasn't born, there would be no Michael Swango. Wow. Mm -hmm. But there's more. When I do my research, I love looking into siblings, aunts and uncles, all these people. Mm -hmm. So as I was looking into the Swango family, I looked at all the children of Elijah Swango, his great grandfather. And as I'm researching his grandfather's brother, Jesse Lee Swango, I stumbled onto a shocking story. The story of Michael Swango's fifth cousin, Jesse Oliver Swango, their common ancestor being Abraham Swango, the first one to settle in Kentucky. I'm all ears. You're killing me. Tell me. What's the story? The one thing that they had in common is murder. Murder most foul? Murder most foul. In October 1947, on the 20th of October, so seven years before Michael's born, where did he reside? Where did his cousin reside? I was about to get that. Charleston, Illinois, which is Coles County. Oh. And Charleston's an hour and a half south of me. Mm -hmm. It would be a couple hours, two, two and a half hours, probably east of Quincy. And it has the following. A 53-year-old Coles County farmer, Jesse Oliver Swango, confessed this evening that he struck his wife, mother of his two children, on the head twice with a large wrench, poured gasoline on the basement floor of their farmhouse where the attack occurred, and then set it afire. Her body had been recovered from the blazing house Monday evening. Swango's confession made to Cole's officials at 6 p.m. today when he voluntarily appeared at the courthouse was read tonight before the coroner's jury, which recommended that he be held for grand jury action. I thought I would feel better if I told you, Swango commented. He confessed. He wow. was found dead and he confessed. Oh, it, it keeps going. The investigation of Cole's officials had been quiet since the body of Laurel Swango, 32, had been recovered from the farm home 10 miles north of here. So the police knew that there was body recovered, but they never told anybody about the body. Okay. The account continued to the effect that Swango ate breakfast and about 8.45 a.m. after the children left, went to the basement after his work closed before going to the fields to combine. My wife came down, he stated, and mentioned Annabelle to me. Why do you always ask me about other women, Swango said he asked her. And she replied, you take better care of them than you do me. Oh, wow. Uh, Swango recounted that he had a 12-inch wrench in his hand and that he then hit her on the left side of the head twice before she went down, obtained gas, and threw it on the basement floor near a water heater and lighted it with a match. Swango concluded his statement by saying that he and his wife had an argument 10 days ago. I don't know whether I made up my mind to kill her then or not. I did kill my wife because she nagged at me and was mean to the children. He said that his statements made to the fire chief and coroner previous to the confession were false. Oh my God. So first of all, he proves her right by killing her. Yes. And then, and they had children. Yes, two daughters. Oh my God, those poor kids. Oh my God. Mm -hmm. Wow. And then he tries to cover it up by setting shit on fire. He didn't really think that through, did he? Wow. No. And then two months later in December, the headline comes up on the paper. Jesse Swango, Cole's Slayer, Strangles Self. Wow. Um, and the story continues. Jesse O. Swango, 53-year-old Fairgrange farmer, indicted here yesterday for the October 20th bludgeoning, torch slaying of his wife, early today strangled himself in a cell block in Coles County Jail. Sheriff Graham said Swango's body was found at 4 a.m. by Charles Stewart, who had been sharing Swango's cell. So he was sharing a cell. Oh, it gets better. Because I find this whole thing suspicious. This is very curious. Yeah. Stewart. Very hard been, to strangle yourself. Right. Stewart, who had awakened and discovered his cellmate missing, found Swango's body with a belt around his neck, 
and the other end of the belt fastened in a, to a bar above the door of the bullpen adjoining the cell. The sheriff explained Stewart had been planted in the cell with Swango to help foil any suicide attempt, but that Swango had left the cell sometime after midnight while Stewart was sleeping. There's so many problems with this. Yeah, cell doors occasionally are left open, Sheriff Graham pointed out, to enable prisoners to use toilet facilities at one end of the locked bullpen. He also said jail officials were not surprised at Swango's suicide and that Stewart and turnkeys have been watching him carefully. Apparently not carefully enough. Wow. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Yes. Wow. So he would have been, although a fifth cousin would have been a generation before Michael Swango. Yes. And it looks like two generations. He was 20 years older than his wife. Yes. Huh. They do seem to marry much younger women in that family. They do. Now, I, I did find a sad report in the paper. Um, the next year in 1948 in August, and it, it goes like this. Goldie Mae Gross was taken to Anna Friday by Sheriff W.E. Scott after an unsuccessful attempt to take her own life early Friday morning by jumping in a well at her home. Mrs. Gross was taken from the well by neighbors who were attracted to the well by her cries. Mrs. Gross's husband died about a week ago, and last fall, a daughter, Laurel Swango, was murdered by her husband. Oh, I can see why her mother would have been quite distraught. Yeah, uh, her husband oh. dies, her daughter's already dead. It was just too much for her. Yeah, oh, so. but she lived through it? Yes. Or not? Okay. She did. Oh, wow. So sad. But the effects, you know, of what somebody does reverberate. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, I mean, even just think about the people that Michael Swango affected mm -hmm. and then all the people that that affected. I mean, that's, it's horrific. It's just horrific. Well, and I mean, it's just horrific enough that Jesse Oliver killed one person and you know, it affected his daughters and it yeah. definitely affected her mother. Right. But Michael Swango killed, they're thinking at least 60. Yeah. And how much that affects everybody beyond that. Mm -hmm. It's, Oh my gosh. Denise, my brain is so full. Yeah, this was a lot of information. Wow. This was a big one. And that's so the is story that... of Michael Swango, his family and his crimes. Oh my gosh. Well, thanks. This was really interesting. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And leave us a good review so more people find us. You can also find us on social media as well as our website, murderousroots.com, where murder and family meet.